31 years ago, I took my first vocational ministry position. I went on staff at a church in Denton, Texas, the northern tip of the Golden Triangle there around Dallas and Fort Worth. And I was a seminary student. My assignment was to work with college students. And I, I think I was a little naive when I started in ministry back in 1984. So yes, I am getting old and I'm getting older faster, it seems, every year. And because um, I, I really thought that when I, when I started in ministry, my biggest challenge would be trying to, trying to lead people to believe in God. But I wasn't in ministry very long before I had an aha moment. It's just this moment of insight that really my biggest challenge wasn't so much about getting people to believe in God. It was really trying to impact what people believed about God. And there's a big difference between those two. You know, before I went into ministry, I, you know, clearly, you know, you, you knew that there were some very different understandings about God that, that kind of circulate through the world, right? You know, we have one culture that think that, you know, that a cow is sacred. Not, not just very different from the world that you and I grow up in, right? That was in the age of the, the you know, where the New Age movement was really kind of just beginning to flourish, that somehow God was the life force in everything. And so you were looking to get in touch with your life energy and the life energy in trees and in plants and birds and et cetera. And you're holding on to crystal. It's like just a really different kind of idea out there about God. I mean, we live in a generation now where there literally is a, a segment of the world, a, a literally whole, whole populations that have been convinced that it's actually pleasing in the sight of God to strap on explosives to yourselves, walk into a marketplace, and blow yourself up, killing loads of innocent people, and that God somehow finds pleasure in that. And that is consistent with God's will. I mean, there's a lot of wild beliefs about God throughout the world. But what really surprised me in those early days, and it's something that really hasn't changed very much over the 31 years I've been doing ministry, is that there really are some, there really are some wild beliefs about God inside the church. You know, it was one thing to think about, you know, the various cultures around the world and this and that, what people believed about God, but literally inside the four walls of the church building, there are a lot of different ideas about who God is and what God is like. I mean, people, most people who show up on a Sunday morning, they believe in God, but there can be a wide difference in what they understand God to be really like, what they believe about God. Some of the things I encountered over the years, and, and this came out really in many ways early on with the, with the college students, it just, many of it just kind of emerged. And one of the thoughts was there is that one of the beliefs about God was that God was a cosmic killjoy. If it was fun, if you would like doing it, it was against the rules. That's what many people believed about God. You know, all the other stuff that people were doing on campus and other places that was fun, you know, that, that was somehow or another wrong in the eyes of God, and their idea, their understanding of God was that he was a cosmic killjoy. Now, I also was serving in Texas, and Texas is Baptist country, in case you didn't know that. I mean, there's just, I mean, they're, they're, the, the, when I was there, there were over 5,000 Baptist churches in the state of Texas, and that was just the Southern Baptists. That didn't include the Independent Baptists and all the other ones. I mean, there were, there were Baptists everywhere. 
I was going to a seminary that had 5,000 students who were preparing to go into Baptist ministry. It was Baptist country. And a lot of legalism that went with it. And so there were a lot of people, their conception of God was that God was like, he was like, God was like a police officer in heaven who was, he, he, he had parked his cruiser in the most secluded place along the, the sideway, the highway of your life. And as soon as you got two miles over the speed limit, he was going to flick on the blue lights and make you pay for it, you know. And, and that's the way people understood God. God was there to, to smack you, on the, smack you on, the, on the knuckles if you got out of line. And it was all about God was trying to catch you messing up. And there was all kinds of stuff that was floating around. But probably the most prevalent understanding was that, that somehow or another that God was like a, and this is my terminology, they would have never said this, but that God was like an eternal patsy. You know, if you, if you walked the aisle on a Sunday morning, said you believed in Jesus, and you got baptized, and you came to church every once in a while, God couldn't touch you. Because you were once saved, always saved, so you could go do whatever you wanted, and God, could, God couldn't do anything to you. And that's the way a lot of people treated God. Was, you know, I'm fine, he could, you know, he, I got his grace, that kind of stuff, and, and there's nothing God can do to me, and people just push the limits. And that's the way they saw God. And, and I got to tell you, misconceptions about God it's one of the greatest areas in our lives where you and I need to have aha moments. Now, we're going to be talking for the next seven weeks about this journey of aha. Now, some of you are going to look at it and say, this kind of seems a little bit, you know, manufactured, if you will, to come up with some kind of series. You know, it may be a little gimmicky or whatever, but I got to tell you that the fundamental understandings that we're building this series off of that we're joining with others and calling it the aha journey, is absolutely fundamentally connected to the way that God works in the world. No matter what terminology you want to use, you might be able to express what we're going to be talking about in different ways, but what we're actually talking about is foundational to the way that God works in the world. Now, in the early readings in your book, you're going to come across the fact that what we're talking about here are spiritual experiences that create supernatural change. Others are... Ways he's gonna, we're going to phrase it is that these are moments, these, these moments of recognition that lead to under fresh understanding that produce action that really leads to our lives being changed. Now, the word aha here is not just the aha moments. I, I had one of those when I was first starting in ministry here in, in Massachusetts. I had come back to home territory to plant the church, and one of the first families that got involved in the life of our church was a couple by the name of Jim and Sandy Tasio, just great, great people, but you know, um. First, one of the first times I went to visit at their house, you know, we were sitting in their kitchen, we were having a cup of coffee. Yes, I was a big coffee drinker even way back then, you know, and, and we're sitting, and, and, in, and they had this little thing on their refrigerator. It was a little bit bigger than like a bookmark, maybe, you know, like a half again as big kind of idea. And, and she's looking at it, she's, well, what do you think of that? And I'm looking at it, and looking at it, and it just really kind of looks like a series of blocks, you know, and I'm like, well, that's interesting. She said, well, you, you don't see it? And I, I said, You know, she said, you of all people should see it. I'm like, you know, what does that mean? And then I think it was on the second visit that I went there. Somehow or another, if you, if you look at, if you use a focal point, out of it emerged the name Jesus. You know, and, and so that was an aha moment. You could see something that had always been there, but you had never seen it before. For us, the word aha stands for awakening. It stands for honesty. 
and it stands with, for action. And I want to tell you that is the journey that all of us need to be on on a regular basis. You know, this is, we don't have one awakening moment, one moment of honesty, and one moment of action, and then we never have to go through it again. The, this experience of encountering new truth from God, new insights into who we are and how we relate to Him, how things are working in the world, that kind of awakening, those moments of fresh understanding connected with our evaluation of where we stand in relationship to it and taking the appropriate action from it is supposed to be the foundation stream of our journey. You know, the Scripture tells us that God is at work. Not just in the Old Testament, not just in the New Testament. It didn't end, you know, when, when the Apostle Paul died. God is still at work. Jesus said, you know, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And that continues to go on. The Scripture tells us that He who began a new work in you and me, this good work, He is faithful and is going to continue to work. There's still things for us to learn. There's things for us to have awakenings about, have honest reaction to, and take action from. Jesus said, you know, you know what? It's a good thing I'm leaving. Disciples had a hard time believing that, but he said, you know, when I leave, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. How many of you think you've already been guided into all truth? Not me. The Apostle Paul said, I haven't gotten there yet either. I didn't see many hands up. In fact, I saw no hands up. So all of us have some truth that still needs to be revealed to us. We need to have moments of awakening. And you can just kind of keep going on down the list. God is constantly at work in the world, in us, in our worlds, to show us fresh truths about who He is, about who we are, how we need to stack up against that, and then take the actions that allow us to become more godly in Him. And we're going to be talking about that for a number of weeks to come. And hopefully you'll get pretty familiar with it as we go along. Again, you could describe awakening and honesty and action with different terms or whatever, but that process of constantly encountering Fresh teachings, fresh leadership, fresh direction from God, fresh guidance from God, responding to it by seeing where we sit in alignment to it and then responding in terms of repentance and moving forward. Those things are fundamental to our journey. Now, we're going to be using the story of the prodigal son as our journey, as our focal passage from this journey. And I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 15. You'll find a black Bible there underneath your chair. If you don't have one with you, we're going to turn to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, our text is going to be on page 886. So today in our journey of AHA, we're going to be talking about awakenings related to God. God thoughts, if, if you will. Now, it's not going to be exhaustive. We have things to learn every single day about who God is and the way He works and the way He needs to work in us and etc. But I, I want to point out some I think some pretty key things for us from this text and related to who God is to make sure that we understand at least elements of who God is. And let's put this all in context. You know, sometimes when they put chapter and verses in, we, we kind of lose some of the flow, right? So here's the story, right? Jesus is attracting a huge crowd. And at the end of chapter 14, he says, you know, listen, a lot of them say, hey, we want to be your followers. We want to come to you. And he says, listen, you, 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 you need to understand where you're headed, you know. If you want to be my follower, you've got to hate your father and your mother. You've got to hate your brother and sister. You've got to hate your very own life. You've got to take up your own cross and you've got to follow me. And right now, you need to draw a line in the sand. You need to count the cost. Are you willing to do that? 
Nobody starts out to build a tower, to build a building, and not figure out whether or not they can finish it. Nobody, nobody goes out to battle against another, another king without having a reasonable, doing a reasonable assessment as whether or not they have a chance for victory. So you need to pause right now, think about this, know what you're doing. Let he who has ears to hear, let them listen. He concludes chapter 14. And then it says, and all the tax collectors and the sinners kept coming to them. The spiritual, religious outsiders, even with all this warning, they kept coming to them. And the Pharisees weren't happy because by affirming the tax collectors and sinners, they thought he was, he was actually violating the will of God. So he, he told three parables in this text. We're only going to look at the, the third of these, but the first one is about a shepherd who has 100 sheep. He's got 99 parked inside the corral. They're safe. One is lost. He says he, he secures those, and he goes, and he keeps looking, and he keeps looking, and he keeps looking until he finds the lost sheep. And when he brings them home, carrying them on his shoulders, he rejoices in the fact that he's found the lost sheep. The second parable he tells is about a woman who has 10 coins. The coins represent a day's wages. You know, so let's just say, hey, you know, you're making $30 an hour. That may be a lot for a lot of folks. It may be a little for others, but 250 bucks a day. So she lost $250. So she, she turns her house upside down until she finds that coin. And then she rejoices that she found her money. Any of you ever lost your wallet and it was plugged full of money at the moment? That rare moment when you actually had money in your wallet? I mean, it's just like you're so happy when you find it. In particular, you don't have to cancel all your credit cards and get a new license and all that other kind of stuff. Same kind of joy. He tells the third one. It's about a father and two sons. And we're going to pick up with verse 11. I'd love for you to just follow along and the Bible, why I read it to you, we'll make a few comments, we'll come back and, and look at some things about God that we need to understand in terms of these God thoughts today. And um, I, I challenge the first service that it'd be really great if, if some of you would just pick up the mantle and say, you know what, I'm going to memorize this parable word for word through the seven weeks. Something you can do, something I'm going to try to do. So anyways, here we go. So Jesus, is, he's already told these other two parables. He said, he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now in the Jewish world, there was a requirement that the oldest son receive twice the share of any of the other sons. In this particular case, because there's only two sons, the oldest son would get two-thirds. The younger son would get one-third. And um, it was not common, but it did happen on occasion that a father would basically give ownership, if you will, of his property to his children before he died, but he would maintain control of that. In other words, he got all the income from it. So if he, he gave away 10 acres to this one and 20 acres to that one, then he still got all the harvest that came off of those 30 acres were still his, even though the land was owned by his sons. This doesn't seem to be the case here. In this particular case, the younger son says, you know, give me my share of the estate. And so he distributed the assets to them, to both, the oldest son and the youngest son. He's equal with the kids. And he says, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country. So the father had not only given over the the deed, he'd given over control of it all, and the, son, the younger son sells off everything that he got, packs up, and he goes on a worldwide cruise. And he travels to a distant country where he squandered his estate 
in foolish living. He wasn't the first to do that. He wasn't the last to do that. There are people in our generation who have made millions and millions and millions of dollars and still end up filing bankruptcy. You know? And it's amazing, but they just, you know, he just, he just rips through all of his money, and he's broke. Verse 14, and after he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. Now, as you know, the Jews considered pigs to be unclean. They would have nothing to do with them. If you worked with pigs... You were, un, you were unable to worship in the temple. You, you know, it was just something you just didn't do. It was unclean. This is, this is the worst job that a Jewish kid could have gotten. Okay? I don't know. Maybe be like having the job of being the guy who gets to climb inside of the septic tank to fix it. You know? It's just, you know, it's a terrible job. And he longed to fill his, and he longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. Some of you, what a carob pod looks like, it's, you know the, the helicopter seeds that come down off the trees? These are just like a bigger version of that, right? So can you imagine, you know, I think I'll skip lunch. We're having carob pods for dinner, you know. I just want to make sure I can have an extra, have lots of room to eat. These, it's just disgusting food, right? But he's, he's longing to eat his fill, even from the carob pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. And when he came to his senses, when he had an aha moment, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to my father, say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. That's true. And I've sinned in your sight. In other words, I've sinned against you. That's true. I'm no, wor- I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. Th- that-, that would have been the moment in the story that would have just blown the minds of the Jewish listeners. This story was not uncommon. The rabbis had been using a story like this for a long time to teach. And the way they taught it was there were two sons. Da, da, da. The son took everything and went off to his squandered everything. And when he came home, when he came into vision, the father turned his back, went in the house, closed the door, and said, that's it. Now here, the guy clears the horizon. The father sees him. The father doesn't go in the house, doesn't close his just cross his arms and wait for him and say, you know, you're dead to me. Doesn't do any of that stuff. He says he actually runs to him. And he has compassion on him. And we'll talk about the running aspect a little bit later. Because that also would have been a shock. And the the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned in your sight. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And right then the father just cuts him off. And And the father says to the slaves, you know, his servant says, quick, bring out the best robe. In other words, Let's, let's dress him like he belongs in the family and put it on him. Put, put a ring on his finger. So in other words, he once again has the authority, the ability, the right to represent us as a family. Put sandals on his feet. Slaves went barefooted. Free men wore shoes. 
You know, there's an old Negro spiritual that says all God's children wear shoes. And, and, and they're talking about that when, when, when they were slaves in, in the southern culture in those days, they, they didn't wear shoes. Only the freed people wore shoes. And that, see that same imagery here with the, with the sandals on his feet. Then he says, then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. <laughs> he was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. But the story's not over yet. There's two groups listening to this story. The tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees who believe that the sinners are outside of the grace of God. And Now his older son was in the field. And as he came near this house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He's coming in from the field. He hears all the celebrations, partying going on. And he gets one and says, well, what's, what's happening? What, what did I miss? And the slave says, your brother's here. And your father slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the son, the oldest son, he come, becomes angry. He didn't want to go in. So his father came out and he pleads with him. Again, very unusual. But he replied to his father, look, I, I, I've been slaving. I, I, I've been slaving for you for many years. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave a young, you haven't even given me a young goat. Not a fatted calf, but even a young goat so I could celebrate with my sons. But when this son of yours, not my brother, he's your kid, not my brother, but when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. In verse 31, the father says, Son, he said, you are, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. Remember back to the beginning? He divided these assets among them. He says, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. It's just right. We had to celebrate and rejoice. Because his brothers of yours was dead and is alive again. And he's lost. And he is found. Now, there's a lot of great stuff we're going to pull out of this, this text over the course of the next few weeks and, and, and bring in some others along the line. But I, I just want to try to point out a few things to you today about God that we can understand from this text. Again, it's not just believing in God, but it's what we believe about God that could be so definitive, so life-shaping about what our journey with God is like. And, and I'm going to try to use some pretty modern language but I'll back up and give you two of your more churchy words, if you will, so maybe you can get both of those pieces. But here's the first thought that I'd give you from this text. God loves a full house, but he's willing to be an empty nester. God loves a full house. Wants the kids home, wants them to be happy, wants to be learning, We're working it together, but he's willing to be an empty nester. Kids come and say, hey, listen, I, I don't really want you. I just want what's coming to me. And he gives it and he lets them go. Maybe say the same thing in some churchy language. If you want to rebel, God's not going to stop you. He doesn't want you to rebel. He wants you to stay home. He wants you to be there with him. He wants to be in relationship with you. But, but if you want to run, he's going to let you go. That's what he does. With the, what the... The younger son asks for here is absolutely incredible. 
He walks into his father and he says, listen, I don't want you just to hand over the deeds but maintain control. I want you to give me everything. I want you to cut loose. I, I want to be independent, separate from you. I want to take everything that you have to give to me, and I just, want to, I just want to go. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I just want your stuff. And the father gives it to him. God, he wants him to stay home, but, and he's willing to receive him back home, but, man, if he wants to run, he's going to let him run. God loves a full house, but he's willing to be an empty nester. You know, I read an account of a pastor one time. He, he, he was talking about an encounter he'd had with a man who had been active in his church. This guy had been really pretty active in, in his church's life. He'd been a leader of some kind. Some moment in his journey, the, man who, the guy who he was married, he had children, but he, he started to develop a relationship with another woman and thought that he fell in love with her. And he eventually left his wife and kids, entered into a relationship with this woman. It all fell apart. By the time the journey ended, this guy was all alone, didn't have a job, no family, nobody to support him, and his, his life was just really just devastating. And he finally came and he visited again with his pastor, and he said, you know, he said, if falling in love with that other woman was so bad, why didn't God stop me? And I got to tell you, God's not going to stop you. you know, he put Abbott and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? He says, you know, you can eat anything you want, just don't eat in one of this one tree. But he doesn't want to say, you know what, and to help you be obedient, I'm going to put an electrified barbed wire fence that goes up 100 feet. He doesn't do that. You know, he could have said, you know what, so, you know how he guarded the Garden of Eden after they left? You know, he's got the flaming, flaming swords and et cetera. So, you know, I'm just going to post some sentries around this whole thing. So you can't get, he doesn't do that. You get right out of that story and you get into the story of Cain and Abel and God even comes to Cain and says, you know, you're angry, you're upset, you got to be careful. Sin's crouching at the door and sin is ready to take you over. you got to be careful. And God could have said, you know what, and because you're kind of stupid, I'm just going to paralyze you. Because if you're paralyzed, you can't kill your brother. He doesn't do that. You know, and, and, and you could just kind of keep... Lot's wife, right? They're walking out of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, my, I can remember my, my great aunts used to come and visit for, you know, my, my, my grandmother's sisters, they used to come and they always had Thanksgiving and Christmas, all that kind of stuff, Easter, when they come out. And they used to talk about, oh, I got a crick in my neck. And I'm thinking, what is a crick? You know, but they got a crick in their neck. You know, they couldn't, you know. God could have given Lot's wife a, a crick in her neck so she couldn't turn, you know, but, but he didn't do that. You know, and, and, and you could just keep following the line down. You know, when, when David's up on the top of the rooftop and he's exercising his voyeurism, watching Bathsheba taking a bath, God could have sent a hailstorm, driven him back inside, put an end to the whole thing. God didn't do that. You know, there, there's an aspect in which God, God wants a full house, but he wants there to be a full house because you want to be there, that I want to be there, that all of us want to be there. And he's not going to stop us from running if we want to run. You know, you can look at the book of Romans where he's talking, Paul's talking about just kind of how the whole thing unfolded and man found themselves so far from God. And he's talking about that journey where man began to, took, to exchange the, the image of the incorruptible God, what was really understood from creation, to, started to shift it over to the things, you know, the images of animals and man and et cetera, where Man was starting to develop gods they could control, if you will. And the scripture says that God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. He said, if that's the way you want to go, then just go. 
And that's a message that a lot of us need to hear today. Because, you know, sometimes we think that the only ones who are really in the distant country are the ones who get there because of unrighteous living. That's how the younger brother got there, right? He took, took everything he had, he runs out, and he li lives the lavish lifestyle. Certainly the older brother thinks he's just spending it on harlots and et cetera, but he certainly he rips through the money pretty fast. He's, he's, he's just living a life that's just out of balance. It's, it's unrighteous, right? And he's in the distant country, but I got to tell you, the older brother is sleeping in the bedroom next to the father, and he's also in the distant country. He, he, he didn't get there by unrighteousness. He got there by self-righteousness. You know, look what I'm doing for you kind of idea. And, and I got to tell you, you and I can run away from home. We can run away from God's home without ever leaving the church building just because of the way we do our journey. The pathway to the distant country can come through unrighteousness and through self-righteousness. My second point, and this one may sound strange and sorry, you know, pastors going to have a little fun every once in a while, at least try to be creative. You guys have been listening to me for 13 years. In fact, uh, this today is the 13th anniversary of our first service, last Sunday in April of 2002. You know, when you look at this text, God's more of an MP than he is a Navy SEAL. Some of you are thinking, what in the world is he saying? I, I'm even thinking that. What in the world is he really mad? You know, God, God's really good at standing watch and seeing stuff from a far way out. He, 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 the father's out on the, standing outside the house, looking down the road, out to the end of the horizon where his far, son left, and he's watching, and he can see his son and recognize him from a long way out. He, he's great at security, right? You know, the MPs and Marines around the world that are secure in our embassies and et cetera, he's great at that. God is not going to be a Navy SEAL and go rescue you forcibly from the pig pen. He just doesn't do that stuff. Now, some of you, oh, well, what about the Exodus? And what about Jesus coming into the world? Those are about God preserving his promise. God promised he was going to bring a redeemer. God was working a plan. Those kind of things. But and he, did, he rescues Egypt. He rescues Israel out of Egypt. He brings them to the, the Dead Sea, separates the, the water left to right and all that kind of stuff. I, I understand all of that. But when it comes down to that, God is not going to forcibly make you be a follower of Christ. Just not. As soon as you're ready to climb out of the pig pen, he's going to be there to give you a hand. But he's not going to grab you by the ankles and pull you out against your will. Just doesn't do that kind of stuff. God has enough respect for the image of himself that he's put into you that he's not going to make you do what you do not want to do. And that's a powerful word for us. Because a lot of us are, well, you know, just keep going. Maybe this even gets worse in terms of this image. But, you know, God wears running shoes. When it comes to our return to him, God is wearing running shoes. I don't know if they're Adidas's or Nike's or Asics or whatever brand it is, but God is wearing running shoes. Here you have this imagery of, of, of God. The father is standing out on the horizon, right? And he's looking and he sees his son comes into view. The, the Jews think the father's going to turn and walk away from his son. He said, you're dead to me. He was gonna cry. But the image we have is that the father leaps the fence and he starts bolting down the road to greet his son. And you know, and for the, the, 
it would, it would have been a shocker to the Jews that this father would have been running because mature men just didn't run. Now, the reason why is that, I mean, they wore tunics, right? So that's, that's like a dress. goes all the way down to your ankle. Now, I've never tried to run in a dress. I want to make it clear, but I, my understanding is it's not all that easy to do, right? You know, and, and some of you ladies, you know, especially those pencil ones, right, that are really tight. You know, I... So, you know, um, but, so the way they ran is they would have grabbed their garment, they would have pulled it up, and they would have been showing their legs. And, and that really was humiliating in the ancient world. To, to, to show your legs as an adult male was just absolutely humiliating. It was, it was disrespectful. And the fact that this father literally hikes up his tunic and starts bolting down the road to his son. It's just an incredible message. God is eager. He's ready. He, he's willing to meet you three quarters, all the way out to the edge of the pig pen, but he's not just going to put, but he's ready to meet you. And when he does so, he is a master of restoration work. You know, I once knew a guy in South Carolina that worked with us a little bit on our first church and some stuff, and his specialty was fire and water damage restoration. I mean, he built a big company out of it, you know. It's all, it's a master of restoration. That's what God is. He said, as soon, soon as he encounters the sun, the sun starts in, I'm not sinned against you, that kind of stuff. He says, no, 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 put the robe on him. Give, give him back his position. Get, put the robe on, put the ring back on his finger. Now he once again has the, the right and the privilege to represent the family in our community. Put sandals on his feet. He's nobody's slave. He's my son. He's, he's free. You know, and he, and he restores them to that relationship. The relationship might have been broken, but the sonship wasn't gone. And he's eager to restore us back to its fullness. God, God, God is, he loves to run to us. No matter where we are, he loves to run to us. All right. I can get excited up here. So let me finish up with my last point. Life is always better with God. Life is always better with God. The nature of who God is, the way, nature of the way God works, all kind, life is better with God. This son, he, he, he left home, he, he, he took everything with him, and he, he was just going to live the high life. This is the kind of stuff you make TV movies about, right? Just, you know, this is the glamorous, all the best, et cetera, you know. Next thing you know, he, he's sitting in a pig pen. And he's thinking, you know what? Not only does my brother have it better than I do, but even my father's servants have three good meals a day. Life is always better with God. And that's true not only for those who get to the distant country through unrighteousness, it's also true for those who get to the distant country through self-righteousness. Because sometimes we can be living in the shadow of the church's steeple and still not have the joy of the celebration and the relationship, just like the older brother didn't have with the father. So I'm just slaving for you. You're, you're, you're confining me. I get, life is always better when we live it in relationship with God. So, you know, that, that, just, that just runs across every dimension of our lives. It's, you know, it, it runs across our, our vocational lives. 
It runs across our relational lives. It, it runs across our financial lives, our spiritual lives, our educational lives. Whatever aspect you can, you can, you can think of, life is always better when we do it in relationship with God and we do it God's way. Life is better. So the challenge I have from you today, from our text, is what does your lifestyle really say about what you believe about God? What does your lifestyle really say, your relational or vocational or spiritual or relational, whatever term you want, financial, what, what does your lifestyle say about what you believe about God? As we go through these weeks together, you'll have places in your books. You can, some of you have other journals or whatever. Just, just make notes about some of those awakening moments where you really develop insight into who God is as compared to what, who you really think he is. Let's pray together for just a moment. Let a moment of quiet descend upon us. God, as I stand here today, all of us, me included, have ways in which we can come home. We have areas of our lives where we need to come home. God, there's ways in which, which I wish, and I think others in this room do as well, that you weren't the kind of God who let us go in the first place. You just made us stay. Our lives would be so much better. But God, today we celebrate that you're looking for us. And you're ready to meet us, restore us, and guide us to the party. God, let us see what we really believe about you and show us what we really should believe about you. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.